Hello and welcome to this Institute for Government event on future COVID-19 scenarios. I'm Alex Thomas, I'm a Programme Director at the Institute for Government and we're really pleased to produce this event in partnership with the Wellcome uh, Trust. Um, G7 leaders are gathering in on the north coast of Cornwall. The British weather uh, is putting on a show at the moment at least, um, but there won't be much time for them to paddle or to fight off the seagulls. Um, COVID-19 uh, uh, will and should be top of the minds of the G7 leaders amongst everything else that they are concerned uh, about. Some countries are lifting restrictions, uh, some are well ahead on vaccine uh, deployment, others have barely started and some countries are heading back or in the middle of uh, severe uh, outbreaks. Um, so uh, the uh, top of the list for the G7 will be uh, discussing a global response to the pandemic crisis. Um, over the last month, uh, we in the Institute for Government, working with uh, colleagues at uh, Wellcome, have gathered uh, first scientists together to uh, get a uh, handle on the future scenarios uh, for uh, how this uh, virus might develop. Um, there was optimism uh, and pessimism, uh, optimism about vaccine deployment, um, pessimism about uh, uh, new variants uh, and their transmissibility and their uh, virulence. Um, after that discussion, we then brought um, policy experts uh, together to identify uh, the sorts of responses that G7 leaders should be uh, thinking about based on the science. Uh, and they focused on, among many other things, uh, vaccine sharing uh, as by far the most uh, significant intervention that uh, political leaders could make, uh, increased surveillance uh, and a global uh, more global effort on outbreak um, resilience. Um, we've produced uh, a very short paper um, out today uh, summarising this, so a plug for that. It's on the uh, IFG website uh, and we're also delighted to uh, bring this uh, event to you today to explore some of those themes in more detail. Um, we've got a, a hand-picked uh, panel here today representing the scientists um, uh, the policy uh, experts, and we've also added in a uh, top science uh, journalist uh, for good measure. Um, uh, uh, I'll introduce them in a minute, but before I do, the first of many plugs for questions, you should be able to see the uh, Q&A uh, uh, icon on your screens. Uh, really keen uh, after some opening discussion to get into your questions as soon as possible. Do throw them in um, and feel free also to uprate uh, or uh, kind of promote the questions that you're most interested to see uh, answered. I'll keep an eye on those throughout uh, the uh, event. Uh, if you can also say who you are and where you're from. So to introduce the uh, panel, um, uh, first, uh, Sir Suma Chakrabarti, uh, who was former Permanent Secretary at the Department for International Development, former Permanent Secretary at the Ministry of Justice. Uh, also, more recently, uh, he's uh, the uh, um, uh, he was the chair of the European Bank for Regional uh, Development uh, and is the incoming chair of the Overseas Development Institute. Suma is also an advisor to presidents and prime ministers the world over, so we're very pleased to have him uh, here today. Uh, next, uh, uh, Professor Gagandeep Kang, who's a professor in the Department of Gastrointestinal Sciences at the Christian Medical College in India and a fellow of the Royal Society. Um, I should also say um, uh, Professor Kang is uh, universally referred to as Cherry, so I shall do that uh, for the uh, rest of uh, this uh, event. It's really good to have you with us, Cherry. Uh, next, Dame uh, Una O'Brien, another former Permanent Secretary, our cup overfloweth. Um, she uh, was former Perm Sec at the uh, British uh, Department of Health and is a member of the Council at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And last but not least, uh, Tom Whipple, who is science editor at The Times. He's also one of those commentators whose articles and Twitter threads has become uh, absolutely invaluable to all of us over the past uh, 15 months. So, Tom, thank you for joining us. It's brilliant to have you here. We're going to get into the discussion uh, in a moment. Um, but first, I'm just going to hand over to Beth Thompson, who is the Associate Director for Policy at the Wellcome Trust, who will say uh, another quick word of introduction. So, Beth, over to you first. Thank you, Alex, and welcome everyone. The origin of this piece of work was understanding more about the possible trajectory of COVID over the, the medium to long term. And we felt this was important given we've had so much focus, understandably, on the initial response. In the piece of work originated with us about a year ago, but most recently with Institute for Government, we've refreshed the science based on the latest evidence and importantly brought policymakers into this discussion. 
I think what's critical about the findings from the futures work that we've done is in the worst case scenario, but also the best case scenario, the, this coronavirus isn't going away. We have to learn how to live with it. So therefore we're in a fascinating position where the critical questions are policy questions about how we can control it. And the sooner we act and the more cohesively we act, the better the chances of, of reaching that best case outcome. From Wellcome's perspective, uh, with the G7 coming up, it's critical that they work together uh, to share the vaccine doses that are needed to fund the ACT Accelerator and to start thinking about the long-term reforms and financing solutions that we need for this response. We've heard warm words from the international community so far and, and really now is the time to be turning that into concrete action. So I'm really looking forward to hearing the insights and the perspectives of this expert panel that we have here today. Thank you all for coming. Alex. Thanks, Beth, uh, and thanks for that context um, uh, and a number of those themes will pick up, I hope, through the through the discussion. I'm going to start then with um, Una. You were, um, as I said, Permanent Secretary of the Department of Health. You were there uh, during the most recent uh, serious Ebola outbreak. Obviously, that's not directly comparable to this, any number of differences. But can you give a sense of how uh, at this moment pre G7, the international community comes together or doesn't come together in a health crisis? Una. Thank you, Alex, and thanks to you and uh, to welcome for for bringing this work together. I think it, it itself is an excellent collaboration between two really esteemed institutions. And so I encourage your further dialogue with, uh, uh, together. Well, looking back, you know, on Ebola 2014, we, we know it's a highly infectious disease with a high fatality rate. I mean, on one reading, there was very strong international cooperation because we can remember those scenes on the television of healthcare workers from around the world um, volunteering to to support the efforts in those three countries in West Africa for that outbreak who were most severely affected. And of course, we now know um, that we have a vaccine for Ebola, um, which was uh, given its full approval from the US authorities just in 2019. But equally, I think another lens on the Ebola crisis was that the international cooperation wasn't really that great. I mean, it was slow. It was very slow to get mobilised. The data and surveillance were not good, as good as they should have been, given how long we've known about Ebola, which is decades. And the vaccine itself, one of the things I was most interested to discover during those days in the Department of Health, was that um, a number of teams, including one in Canada, had been working on a vaccine for Ebola for decades, but that actually no pharma company had uh, taken it up. Um, and it was only subsequently, based on that immense amount of research and work, that we were able to get a vaccine so quickly because of that effort that had gone in. And then finally, I think the other lesson that perhaps we could have learned and didn't learn as well as we should have done from Ebola is the absolute importance of local knowledge and people on the ground and people understanding the social um, uh, way of life uh, that contributes to or can help to limit the transmission of a, of a virus. And in the end, it was that local effort um, of tracing and isolating that really, really helped to make a difference in that outbreak. So a mixed message really, and it's good that we're talking about the G7 because of course, a huge number of initiatives were undertaken in 2015 on the back of Ebola. And one of the tests this week is gonna be looking at, well, how well did the world do um, uh, on the back of that work? Thanks, Una, it's fascinating and some some themes that resonate over the last year. Uh, Tom, I'll, I'll come to you next. It would be good to get your reflections on on that, uh, a sense of how, uh, you know, how the world uh, has or hasn't learned from uh, previous uh, outbreaks and also a bit of a, an, an unfair question, a sort of rating of how the world has done so far and where you think, where you think things have, have gone well or perhaps uh, more where they haven't gone so well. And so uh, G7 leaders should be focusing. Tom. Um, weirdly, yesterday I was uh, to name drop, I was interviewing Sarah Gilbert, the uh, creator of the Oxford vaccine. It's marvellous that you can name drop biochemists these days. Um, <laughs> and uh, she was talking a lot about Ebola um, because that was sort of 
where they would begin their vaccine story. It was the realization that they had produced a, a vaccine for Ebola that they just didn't get into testing in time. Um, and so that was very much the, the impetus for the speed with which they got their, their Chadox vaccine out this time. Um, and a lot of, I, I guess, uh, in a lot of ways, Ebola was a dry run for this, but in one really, really big way, it wasn't, which is everyone's involved this time. Um, I, I think there was something for us sort of chauvinistically in the West, there was something familiar about Ebola. It was very bad thing happening in a poor country that's not us in we whoosh. And actually a lot of that approach was what was wrong with, with how we responded to Ebola. Um, but this time it was here as well. And uh, no one had prepared for that. Uh, and in, in fact, Sarah Gilbert was talking about just this, you know, their, their plan was to deal with outbreaks that they weren't involved in. And suddenly they realized they had to have conversations about childcare and whether their vending machine was going to get restocked. And if not, how are they going to get, uh, how are they going to get takeaways in, into the, the Jenner Institute? Um, I, I think in that sense, it's, it's been completely different. Um, and if you think the international response wasn't great for Ebola, and of course there was a lot that was wrong with it, it's been completely complicated this time round by the fact that we've got all manner of conflicting self-interests going on. Um, and I guess one of the strange lessons of the pandemic is that we will only solve this collectively, but the other lesson I think loads of countries are taking is we will only solve this individually. Um, you know, Af Africa needs its vaccine manufacturing, Britain needs its vaccine manufacturing, and it, it, it's a, a weird and unresolvable paradox between the, the, the fact that this is a globalised problem, but uh, the globalisational element for it, it, it has often gone quite wrong. Um, so in that sense, what's my score? I, 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 I don't have a score, I guess, I guess the only comparator is Spanish flu, and I suppose we've done a little bit better than that, but uh, I, I'd, I'd like to, or I wouldn't like to see a few more pandemics to judge it against, but, uh, you know, it's gone wrong, wrong in all manner of ways, but there have been shining lights of science that have done some amazing things. Thanks, Tom. Brilliant. Uh a very um, you know, fair answer to an entirely unfair question, and um, uh, uh, no, really interesting. I think I'll pick up on your nearly the last point you made, you made there about the sort of individual and collective nature of this. Uh, there is something about not being naive, but we talk about vaccine sharing. But there's something about recognizing the real politique of this and going with the grain of that, um, uh, as 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 well as the the more sort of big picture idealistic uh, points that which certainly came out in our in our discussions. Um, uh, Sumer, I'll, I'll come on to to you next, and. You've been in, in a number of different roles, a leading figure at these uh, sorts of international gatherings and uh, multilateral multilateral um, uh, uh, events. Can you uh, give us a sense of, of how these sorts of events work? Uh, what's the feel of it? Uh, and how do the top priorities emerge? What's done before and what happens actually uh, in, in the room where it happens? Well, the truth is quite a lot of G7 meetings don't work very well. And I would say for the last few years, they haven't worked at all. And both Tom and you know, have said quite a bit about uh, leadership, international leadership that has been rather missing. They work best, in my experience, when the collective interest and the self-interest are aligned. And uh, th this is one of the biggest issues, obviously, in this uh, coming summit, because for this summit to work, I think, um, the G7 really need to make the case of their own domestic audiences why a global vaccination campaign is in their own interest. Um, because if the if the pandemic isn't contained in the global south, then variants will emerge um, that put any gains in G7 countries at risk, as we've seen to some extent in the UK. Um, I think delay in vaccinating the world is of course also economically costly, but that may not matter to some in the uh, advanced countries. Um, but it certainly does matter to in terms of the global economy. Uh, so if we don't support lower income countries, which will have slower growth because and slow recovery because of the slowness of the vaccination programs, then uh, that will slow the world economic growth as well. <clears throat> so we'll end up having impacts on jobs here in, in, in other G7 countries. So I think you're right in, in, in uh, IFG and Welcome and other institutions in saying that increasing vaccination rates in the global south is the key action 
that's required. And of course, Boris Johnson, as chair of the G7, has said that the target should be to vaccinate the world by the end of next year. Um, so that requires ambitious action on vaccine financing, vaccine sharing and vaccine production, in, in our view, I think, at ODI. Um, first of all, <clears throat> on financing, there's a huge financing gap uh, already. Um, I won't bandy around all the numbers, but it's pretty large. And if you just think about the G20, um, I think there is a commitment of about $15 billion on the ACT accelerator. But the IMF thinks we need another $31 billion on top of that. So, and then if you think about what should be the share of the G7, which is what they need to focus on at this meeting, um, well, the G7 probably ought to be financing around two thirds of that total. Um, and that would mean all the G7 members making large increases to their existing commitments. Just for the UK alone, it would mean uh, an additional one to two billion dollars on top of the 1.1 dollars, uh, billion dollars that they've already pledged um, to the UK. But, you know, that's still small in comparison to the hundreds of billions of additional borrowing that the UK has been undertaking for the domestic response to COVID-19. So it's it's doable, certainly in my view. Vaccine sharing, I think um, we've got to make rapid progress towards the target of one billion vaccine donations to COVAX by the end of uh, this year. Um, that's been called for not just by the IMF, but the Independent Panel on Pandemic Preparedness and Response. And it's, it's the IMF's own analysis says that can be met by the G7 and the European Union, donating just half the excess doses that they've pre-purchased after they've vaccinated about 75% of their populations. But at the moment, the commitment from the G7 EU is about 250 million vaccine doses, donations, and not all to COVAX. So that's another area to make progress on. And, and the last point, I think, is on vaccine production capacity. For that to happen, the G7 really needs to support a waiver on the WTO's rules uh, on compulsory licensing. Um, that's required to allow third party manufacturers to export anywhere in the world. Uh, and the G7 really need to ensure that any bottlenecks in supply chain of the pharmaceutical sector uh, can be addressed really fast. I think that's the sort of menu of uh, outcomes that I'd be looking for from a G7 summit. And G7 summits tend to be successful not just when they align the interests of self-interest with the collective interest, but when they are actually quite focused on a set of issues. And I think the vaccine issue is the issue of the time that they need to focus on. Thanks, Emma. That's really stark and, and clear. And also, I mean, there are so many other issues flowing around the G7 climate and uh, uh, international tax rates and uh, Brexit and everything else. There is a question as to how much space there is to to focus on those um, uh, on those questions. We shall see. I'll come back to everyone at the end and ask them how optimistic or pessimistic they are. So I'll save that one for a uh, for, for a final question. Uh, but you have fair warning. Um, uh, Cherry. Um, can we uh, just uh, hear a little bit and thank you for your contribution to, to, to this um, work about why vaccine sharing is, is so uh, important. It's almost become a sort of truism over the last few uh, weeks. But um, from your perspective, particularly uh, sitting in India at the moment, but, um, uh, uh, but more generally, why, why vaccine sharing is, is so important? So I think this time last year, we probably wouldn't have put vaccines as front and center as we are doing now. And the reason we are bringing vaccines to the front is because we've seen what vaccines can do. You just need to be looking at what's been happening in the US, in Israel, in the UK to see that vaccines are about the best news we've had all year. We are in a situation where vaccines have transformed your environments. And unfortunately, because we haven't been able to get a large part of our population vaccinated, in India, we're still at about 15% of the population receiving the first dose and less than 5% at two doses. So vaccines have not been able to mitigate the spread of the Delta variant in India. And this is a threat to the rest of the world. The variant has traveled already. You're seeing what it can do in your environment. So this should serve as a warning to all of us that if we want to harness the power of vaccines, we need to make sure that vaccines get out there as quickly as possible to as many people as possible. If we look 
at what our best case scenario might be that has to have vaccines in front doing what they can do. And if we are really, really lucky, we'll wind up with vaccines where we find that immunizing once is sufficient, that vaccines can look after most variants. And maybe as a bonus, we'll build an adult immunization program in countries that have never had it before. But it's also possible that, you know, if we allow the viruses to rage unchecked, we are going to see many, many more variants that will be able to escape the immune response. And then we might need to vaccinate the whole world again and again and again. And for that, I guess it's a good thing that we have significantly improved vaccine capacity. We've gone from four to five billion doses of vaccine being made every year to potentially looking at next year being able to make up to 15 billion doses. So uh, if the worst case does come to happen, then at least what we are doing now will continue to be important. I think the key thing for the G7 and in all the discussions we have is that scientists have pretty much done their job and I hope that they will continue to perform the way that they have been performing. The manufacturers are stepping up to the plate and really now it's about policymakers and our leaders enabling what vaccines can do for us, as I said, as quickly as possible. Thanks, Cherry. Perfect sort of exposition of uh, uh, the importance of this and why we're uh, talking about it. Really uh, clear. Uh, thank you. I might, I think I'll ask um, Tom and then maybe uh, Una to reflect partly on what um, uh, Cherry uh, said, said just, just then, but also <clears throat> about uh, one of the things that came across so clearly from this piece of work that we did and more generally is COVID-19 is going to be a long-term health uh, problem. It is going to be with us forever. And uh, again, that's starting to be sort of uh, reflected in the debate. But do you think it really has been internalised in the minds of uh, leaders who are desperate, certainly in the UK, for a, a quick exit uh, out of this, desperate for, for good news? Have people really clocked that this is going to be a long term systemic uh, problem? Uh, uh, Tom, do you want to pick up that first? Uh, I, I think they perhaps have done intellectually, um, but perhaps less so emotionally. Um, I mean, I remember writing right at the beginning of this, I in fact interviewed um, Jeremy Farrar, the head of The Welcome, um, and he talked about the danger of it spreading unchecked in some countries, mutating rapidly, uh, and the, the importance of having equitable vaccine access so that we can deal with it across the world uh, because you know it's not over anywhere until it's over everywhere and i was i slightly slightly sort of felt well you know whatever jezza you know you're you're the sort of global health charity you would say that wouldn't you um but i, I wrote it and it made intellectual sense but it, it didn't really make emotional sense until quite a bit later in the pandemic when i realized you know you're absolutely right um and in, in terms of that and, and in terms of what we've been chatting about, I, I think the, the, the distribution of vaccines is a sort of classic prisoner's dilemma thing where the individual, individually rational thing to do isn't the collectively best outcome or actually the individually best outcome. Um, if, if you were a global government, you would obviously have been distributing the vaccines better. Um, but if you had somehow a British government in charge of the world, um, doing things for the best thing for Britain, I think it would have probably distributed them differently as well, just if all you cared about was Britain. Um, and and the, the difficulty is finding a way to, to make that, that individual collective um, be, because of that. But I'm particularly looking at what happens in the future because I think nobody, yes, it's here to stay, but I don't think anyone really appreciates what that means. And there, there's a range of outcomes for that. And it could well, we could well end up with this situation where it is like an endemic, barely noticeable disease. And, and wouldn't that be marvellous? But I think the extent to which it is mutating has taken a lot of probably all virologists by surprise. Um, 
And I don't think there's such confidence that this is going to naturally fall to its endemic state where it's not bothering us, certainly in the next, in the lifetime of most people here. Um, and certainly the more it's transmitting, the more likely it is that we're going to end up with these vaccine escape mutations um, and these things that just transmit so much faster, which cause all manner of problems. Um, I think most people are trying to get through this year though. Um, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> I am. <laughs> The, the, the human instinct kicks in. I think that's a yeah, salutary reminder. But re really interesting, your thought experiment about if uh, uh, you know the different incentives that operate on different uh, countries and prisoners' dilemma is is fascinating. I mean, Una, what do you make of that? Do you think uh, do you think leaders have internalised uh, this uh, emotionally as well as intellectually? And and what do you think about the British government? Well, let me just say that I think you know if I if I just try and take a century's perspective. The story of the 20th century into the 21st century is an immense achievement of getting on top of infectious diseases. If you look at um, what was killing people in the 19th century and before that, it was mostly infectious diseases and the ability you know, to get on top of that, I think has embedded itself so profoundly in our psyche that uh, we find it very, very difficult to move beyond the language of this will be over, we'll get on top of this. And indeed, that mindset is what has undermined, if you like, our preparedness for where we are now, because we were able, we somehow, get on, to get on top of SARS, to get on top of Zika. We convinced ourselves that these infections were always containable, and that we we could tackle them. And I think the biggest lesson that we're still having to come to terms with from COVID is that that's changed and that we can't think like that anymore. And we've got to stop thinking about short term answers to what are long term problems. So when I reflect on a different framing of this and we talk about vaccines, much as it's important to get them out there, and I mean, it's very shocking even today to know that the whole of Africa, the vaccine percentage is only 1.9% of the population. You know, that, that's deeply worrying. Um, at the same time, let's not do this in a way that, that, that fails to build the capacity of those countries to be better able to manage COVID themselves in the future. We can't uh, rely on this process of sort of turning up surge and retreat, we have to think more deeply and fundamentally about building capacity across the world in healthcare systems and in the ability to manufacture and deliver vaccines effectively. So my, my reflection is the short term is essential and so is long term thinking about how we go about doing this work. Thanks, Una. And it and it's about the sort of outbreak response and the sort of architecture that we're uh, that we're building as as, as well as the uh, decisions that are taken uh, in, in the moment. I mean, picking up on that, uh, Suma, uh, we've talked about um, uh, vaccine uh, sharing. We've talked about some of the uh, sort of um, broader uh, uh, issues that we're uh, dealing with. One of those is institutional reform, and uh, it might not always be top top of the uh, minds of uh, uh, global leaders thinking about the uh, structure of the World Health Organization or, or whatever. But I know you've been doing some uh, thinking and uh, uh, doing some work on uh, the kind of global institutional response to uh, to, to this. Do you, is is the, is the WHO fit for purpose? What 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 needs to change? <laughs> Well, I think uh, I think WHO is one of many things that probably does need to change. I mean, I'm actually sitting on a WHO Pan-European Commission on Health and Sustainable Development, which uh, covers Europe and Central Asia, and there's a mix of high-income, uh, middle-income and low-income countries. And uh, the institutional changes we've been looking at, or reforms we might recommend, are really to do with trying to reduce the risk of future pandemics, but also com combating them more effectively. Because like Tom, I think, you know, the, these will happen again and again. Uh, and what we've tried to do is learn the lessons from the climate change and financial crises responses in terms of institutional reform to other global public bads that led to quite you know, radical and very useful institutional reform. So, for example, we think um, that an international scientific committee on health threats should be established to assess and synthesize existing evidence, very much like the International Panel on Climate Change. I think that can create consensus on where actions are needed, identify gaps in knowledge, 
the surveillance of the health systems have got to be strengthened. Um, you know, you have the IMF, so Article 4 missions, which look at the economic, macroeconomic situation in country. Uh, they're sort of mandatory. But the WHO's joint external evaluation of the international health regulations, what a mouthful, is actually voluntary. And the WHO, in my view, should have strengthened surveillance powers to undertake periodic assessments of national health systems. And that, again, a lesson of Ebola was actually health systems that have been underinvested in. Mm. Uh, and really the need to have national health systems focusing on public health functions and the ability to prepare for and react to pandemics. That could then feed into the IMF surveillance. It could guide the programming of multilateral development banks. Uh, and it also would help the One Health related organizations like the FAO, the, the Agricultural Organization Food and Agriculture, and also the World Organization for Animal Health. So you bring them together. Now, probably the most important thing we're going to push for is the G20 should create a global health board like, uh, well, modeled on the Financial Stability Board that was established after the global financial crisis. This would help identify failures in the provision of uh, global public health goods uh, and also focus on preparedness and responsiveness to health crises uh, and martial support, I guess, from the international com uh, community as well in terms of res mobilizing resources. The last, I think, point really is also about resourcing generally. I mean, if you look at the amount of money that's spent by bilateral or multilateral donors, uh, including international institutions like the EBRD that I, that I led, um, really the amount of investment in global public goods, resilient health systems is actually quite small uh, relative to other areas. So I think they should provide support to make COVAX a permanent mechanism uh, to make sure it has the financing available to make pre-purchases of vaccines for low-income countries, lower-middle-income countries. That would make a more equitable response for future pandemics. I think they need to also increase support for national public health functions uh, as well, for surveillance um, and preparedness and response and responding to antimicrobial uh, resistance as well, and really build up health system capacity as well uh, compared with today. And finally, I think the development finance institutions have got to start putting more financing into innovation and R&D in drugs in vaccines and new technologies. Um, again, that's some, a big area of underinvestment by the existing development finance institutions uh, and, and of course the strength in supply chains as well. So there's quite a, a good institutional and financing agenda, which I think will emerge from this uh, Pan-European Commission from WHO probably by the summer, I think by the end of July it will be out uh, and ready for debate. Mm. That sounds great. Re really interesting. And yes, sort of a plan, a world in search of uh, uh, plans. Um, uh, uh, really interesting there. I mean, I'm going to come to we're getting lots of questions in already, so do keep sending those in. And I'm going to come to those in just a moment. But um, Ch Cherry, I'll ask you one final question from uh, from me, which was Suma mentioned a couple of times surveillance there. And I remember you talking incredibly uh, sort of resonantly in the discussions that we've had previously about um, uh, about the importance of surveillance and also how the UK has a comparative advantage in genomic sequencing and surveillance and actually quite a lot of what we know about what's going on in India uh, comes from the surveillance that's happening in the UK uh, because of the surveillance is is is, is low in in, in uh, India and some other countries um, uh, can you uh, talk talk again about the importance of surveillance and what's what's going on in India and what's going on in, in the rest of the world I think one of the things that's important to understand about surveillance in public health is um, that for many government functionaries, especially in low and middle income countries, it is not to their advantage or in their interest to actually report that they have outbreaks of disease. Because if you report an outbreak, you are responsible for it, you have somehow failed in allowing that outbreak to happen. And as long as you don't separate reporting from response, that is something that is going to continue to happen. In many countries, we underreport because you don't want to admit to having a problem. In many ways, some of those are stigmatizing. Uh, cholera is a key example of where that happens. You don't want to admit to having cholera in your country, your state, your district. Um, for that kind of avoidance of surveillance has led to a situation where laboratory capacity for surveillance is very limited. 
And one of the largest efforts to establish that was the global health security agenda of the CDC that went around the world, building up molecular surveillance capacity. It got pretty much downscaled and shut down a few years ago. And that resulted in very few LMICs having genomic surveillance. The UK has a huge advantage. And I think the welcome played a large part in that by establishing the Sanger Center, contributing first to the human genome, but then to pathogen genomics. And quite frankly, you actually lead the world in that right now. So if that kind of effort were, or that kind of facility were available in many more places, I think we could do a much better job and we need to do a better job. I think this is a current need. It's also a future need for pandemics and these systems need to be built. So far, the model has always been that someone in San Francisco or someone in Cambridge is going to offer to train people from around the world. And it is bestowing favors by building capacity, providing equipment, and we appreciate all of that. How about if we had a global agenda to put surveillance where diseases are likely to emerge? and build the centers and the strengths there. Right now, developing countries don't want to share data for reasons I've mentioned, but they also don't want to share biological materials because there are all kinds of issues about the products that might come from those materials. A key example is Indonesia in the case of influenza strains. So I think as a global community, this is something for us to think about and seeing if we could turn the model on its head might be one way to go. That's fascinating and uh, uh, if you forgive the slightly glib point but uh, note to Boris Johnson this is something that really is world beating and you can uh, you can boast about it and uh, uh, make, make the most of it there. Um, uh, thanks Cherry, Re really interesting. I I'm going to come to questions from uh, uh, the audience uh, now, and there's uh, a popular one from Gavin James, uh, who's from the Department for Transport. Um, should we expect global pandemics to come around more frequently? And if so, what should we do to prepare? Does anybody want to tackle that one? Uh, Tom, you fancy going first? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess that they have been coming around pretty frequently. We sort of just haven't noticed them. Um, you know, we've, we've had these near misses of, of swine flu, of Zika, and each of those has been, you know, Zika, Ebola, SARS-1, each has been kind of a, a, a Russian roulette. And because it, it's landed on the five empty chambers, we thought, fine, and it, it really hasn't impacted on our thinking because we're, we're humans and we're really bad at low probability, high impact events. But if they continue at that kind of frequency, and I see absolutely no reason they won't, then yeah, we absolutely should expect them. I mean, it's a it's a nexus of of humans in dense urban centres, travel, uh, and and meeting animals, um, and and actually possibly irrespective of this one and the current controversy, um, I think we should have, take a look at. at virology as well uh, and really take a look at the risk benefits of some of the research um you know in the uk we've had we've been citing biosecurity level four labs in the middle of farmland looking at foot and mouth disease and they've been seeding foot and mouth disease into the into the farmland um so there's all of these sorts of things that that make things risky um and in terms of what we can do about them, uh, I, I think surveillance is clearly coming through as one of the things. And, and as has been said, the, um, the UK genomic surveillance, which, which sort of happened, you know, through an ad hoc meeting in March by a bunch of gen geneticists who thought, why not? Let's give this a bash, um, has given us a new public health tool in the same way as, you know, we develop the vaccines, sanitation, this is a new public health tool. And I, I think probably things like wastewater surveillance and just more broadly surveillance based on this mass sequencing should give us the resilience uh, as a world to cope with these things a lot better. But um, I, I agree with previous panelists that 
probably uh, ideally this G7 meeting I think should be like a Bretton Woods book for COVID um, where we really sit down and think how are we going to reorganize things how are we going to get mandatory surveillance how are we even going to get things perhaps like mandate mandatory stops on air travel when we get these these things popping up uh, so that we we can make the whole world a lot more resilient Thanks, Tom. Uh, Una, you were nodding along uh, there. Do you want to come in and just because, as Tom mentioned, air travel uh, th at the end there, there's a um, uh, there are a couple of questions actually about um, uh, Robert Morland, for example, how much more needs to be done to prepare international travel for restrictive measures to meet uh, pandemics. That comes back to that sort of have we really internalised this? Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. But Una, love your reflections. Yeah, well, it's just a general point really, and that, that is the risk that we now spend the next two years doing the preparation that we should have done four years ago for COVID-19 because again it's about how we're wired. We, th we, we work on the thing that we know most about in the moment, uh, certainly in a policy world, and then we try to sort that out to make ourselves feel better. And in the meantime we're not paying attention to the underlying uh, exam question on resilience which is how do you build, I mean, I completely agree with everything Sherry has said about the capacity for, for surveillance and understanding the dynamics about um, uh, why we need some form of independent surveillance globally um, and to prepare for the next pandemics because they will come in a more generic way rather than try to build things around a particular virus. Um, a classic example, just to show you how things can, can go wrong. Um, after the SARS outbreak in Canada in uh, 2004, the state of Ontario decided we've really got to do something on PPE. And they got these warehouses full of PPE and they thought, right, we're, we're on it now. We're ready for the next pandemic. And the local uh, audit office, uh, 10 years later in 2014, said, we need to go and inspect these warehouses of this PPE. And they went in and found that it was all well out of date and unusable. So there's something in that example for me about the fact resilience costs money and it needs constant attention and it's something that has to be generic to deal with a number of different threats, certainly in terms of healthcare capacity and the capability of our staff, rather than over preparing for very specific things that may not quite turn up in the same way again. Yeah. Thanks, Una. Perennial uh, problem of uh, government, in my experience, was being super prepared for the last uh, crisis. Um, uh, uh, mentioning the uh, 2015 general election result, uh, 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 only, only briefly. Um, uh, a couple of really uh, interesting questions, sort of slightly challenging some of our assumptions here. And Cherry, I might come to you with these first, but one from my colleague uh, Hannah White, who's asking whether there are risks with the focus on uh, vaccination and vaccine uh, sharing might that blind us to other uh, to other things that we need to uh, do uh, and also one from Susan Murray which is not something I've clocked um, she says uh, conversations so far focused on viral pandemics but very little is being said about fungal risks so Harry Burns ex-CMO was writing recently on how ill-equipped we are for what is ahead and how we need to massively invest now for what is coming what do the panel think would have happened if Covid had been fungal and immune to current drugs that's uh, not something that cost, but it seems interesting and potentially important. Jerry, what do you, what do you, uh, what do you make of that? So, um, sorry, I lost the first question because the fungal one is so interesting. The, the first one was whether there are risks uh, about over-focusing on vaccine sharing. Yes. So I think you can't solve any disease with just one tool you are going to need others and vaccines are not perfect. They are going to fail in a proportion of people and people will get sick and will need to be treated. So the one thing that I think has really been missing from this pandemic is a focus on drugs and getting better treatments out there. We went a bit wrong initially, perhaps because we were following on from what was being done in China and over emphasis on early ventilation. And we learned quickly that that was not the case. Now we focus on keeping patients off ventilators as much as possible and offering therapies. 
Now, in therapies as well, we went off on to hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, a lot of things that had very little use until recovery and solidarity showed us the way. And so far, we really haven't had any new treatments. All of drug use repurposing is a glorified fishing expedition, but it needs to be a well-done fishing expedition. And that's what Solidarity and Recovery were able to do and a few other studies besides. But I think a focus on new antiviral discovery. We used monoclonals and monoclonals are easy, but monoclonals are also easy to escape when you have a virus that mutates. So we really do need to think about how to do antiviral drug discovery better. So that's that part. The fungal infections, there's a reason that most global outbreaks are viral. It's not bacteria because bacteria, we have ways of controlling them either with antibiotics or by standard public health measures, which include, you know, water, sanitation, hygiene, those really make a difference to bacteria. Viruses, especially respiratory viruses, spread person to person, and that's what makes them really difficult to control. In a sense, Ebola was easy to control because you needed to be in close proximity to someone who was infected in order to acquire Ebola. Here, this can happen without direct physical contact. With fungi, um, fungi are eukaryotes, and we actually have very few fungal infections. Most fun fungal infections can be relatively easily controlled. So candida is the one that we see most often, and we've had an increase in candida that affect people, but you need to have some level of immunocompromise, diabetes, some pre-existing condition for a fungal infection to establish itself, or it will be something like a skin infection or hair or nails that don't matter so much. So while things like mucormycosis are front and center in India right now, they are infections that the bulk of us could handle easily, very well. We breathe in mucus pores all the time, but we can handle them because we are immunocompetent. It's only when you create a situation of immunocompromise that systemic fungal infections become a problem. That's why unless it's engineered, I don't think we are going to have outbreaks of fungal infections. Thank you, Cherry. I will uh, take that point of uh, optimism and reassurance and uh, never let it be said that IFG events don't surprise. I did not expect us to be talking about that, uh, that today. So thank you, Susan, for that uh, question. Um, uh, Suma, there's a question that, that uh, looks uh, uh, you know, very much in, in your area of expertise from Jeff White, uh, who asks, how do we get the right mix between international, national and local actions, between centralised and decentralised approaches, especially where rapid responses are likely to be required in specific local areas? Do we need more systems thinking and actions to foster the kind of interaction between those, those agencies? Now, there's, there's, a, there's a, a bit of jargon in there, sorry, Jeff, but, um, but uh, the, the point about kind of coherence is, is, is a really interesting one, Suma. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Um, well, I, I've been really enjoying the science lesson that I'm getting from uh, Cherry and uh, Tom. So it's been very good uh, to uh, you know, go back to my GCSEs, actually, at some point. <laughs> but uh, in terms of uh, um, the question you've asked me, I think, frankly, it, it, you've got to work on all these levels, but it requires leadership. Um, this is a matrix type thing. And if the lessons I take from not just Ebola, but even before that, um, HIV, is that we tended to in, um, invest very heavily in the vertical um, progr drug programs and vaccinations and so on, and underinvest in the more boring, but frankly, more uh, probably very important long-term health systems type stuff. You cannot collect on the high street for uh, improving a health system, but you can for antiretroviral drugs. And that's, you know, and that's why a lot of the investment in the health area in developing countries went into that sort of area uh, rather than in terms of improving surveillance, preparedness, all the capacity building that you need to do um, 
Uh, that therefore requires a type of leadership in the G7, G20, which does emphasize a long-term system building type agenda, which is what I think this WHO Pan-European Commission is trying to do, uh, while also pushing on vaccines. So if this G7 summit focuses on vaccines, great. I mean, sort of, it's a sort of, um, you know, Bretton Woods moment in the sense, as Tom put it, that it's uh, focusing on at least the immediate problem we've got, uh, rolling out vaccinations. But you really want a G20 moment, in a few weeks time maybe, where you really focus on the wider systemic issues of how you build health systems. And that's sort of been institutional reforms and things. And if you look at, you know, the climate change uh, scene, you know, the first uh, UN conference on environmental development was in 72. It was only in 1992, the successor conference, that really things began to ramp up on institutional change and, and financing. So it takes a very long time for the system to adjust its mindset. Um, but hopefully this time around, because I think Tom is right, I mean, all the evidence shows the, the zoonotic type pandemics are going to keep coming around. We've just got to get on with this um, institution building as, as well as vaccination. Thanks, Uma. Uh, Una, you wanted to come in. Yeah, I do just want to mention that, um, you know, reading the uh, communique from the G7 health ministers the other day, which you know is going to be presumably sort of tabled at the main G7 meeting. I mean, it really struck me that while uh, obviously there is a huge amount of attention to COVID, um, that they did identify three other topics, which sort of gives me hope that there is um, mounting attention on these systemic reforms. The first one is the uh, actions for greater cooperation on clinical trials. Um, and we know that international cooperation on the trials for the COVID-19, the Ebola vaccines have been absolutely fundamental to success. Secondly, very importantly, uh, continued action uh, to um, address the issue of antimicrobial resistance which I was interested to see that the communique referred to as a silent pandemic, um, something that's slowly uh, creeping up on us and could have profound implications for even um, the ability to survive very straightforward surgery if we don't get on top of that. Um, and then thirdly, they highlighted interestingly digital health and the need for greater cooperation on common standards. So there is, you know, the evidence is there um, that the, the uh, understanding of the need for systemic reform. But funnily enough, you know, we need to translate it into our own systems. So even here in the UK, um, we recognise this risk of um, the human animal interface. But I have to ask myself, where is the evidence that even our departments that have responsibility for environment and food are much closer and inter, interlinked with our Department of Health. I just don't see it. So we need to start to address these issues in our domestic uh, infrastructure, as well as being able to advocate for, for change uh, at the global level. Thanks, Una. It comes back to the One Health uh, point that Suma was talking about and, uh, uh, and, and, and the uh, linkages. Um, uh, uh, final uh, couple of questions, I think, as we head towards the end. Tom, I might come to you for this first. There's somebody uh, anonymous uh, says uh, the UK public response to COVID has been framed in a very binary way between uh, lockdown more or harder versus let it rip. Uh, has that played out in a similar or different way in other countries? Uh, and what does that mean for future pandemic action in the UK? And I would add uh, overseas um, as well. There's there's also a question about whether we're realistic in expecting or attempting a global strategy. Are we better sort of better off focusing on early warning systems or uh, kind of early response systems rather than trying to tie all this together um, with a with a bow? Uh, t Tom, what do you what do you make of that? I, I remember someone saying to me at the beginning of this um, that once you've once you've experienced one pandemic, you've you've experienced one pandemic. Um, and I, I think that the your, your the question. Oh, we've lost you for a moment there, uh, Tom. If you're not going to come back, let's carry on. 
Um, uh, we'll come back to we'll come back to Tom on that, uh, and I will. What I'll do is I'll go to my the final question I was going to ask uh, everybody about whether they're optimistic or pessimistic, and then give Tom a chance to to carry on when hopefully we we get him back on uh, on online. So uh, maybe uh, uh, Cherry, do you want to go first? Are you are you an optimist or a pessimist for the G7 and also for the for the uh, uh, future scenarios of COVID? I think I'm always an optimist. Um... I'm deeply disappointed sometimes in being optimistic all the time, but I think this is a time when we have done somewhat better than we did before for other diseases, other outbreaks. So I hope that this time around, we will take some of these lessons to heart. I don't expect a perfect world tomorrow, but I hope that it will be a better one. Sounds, um, I'll, I'll, I'll take that, I'll take that. Suma, are you an optimist? I'm an incurable optimist. Um, I, otherwise, why are we, why are we in public policy all these years? Um, <laughs> I, think, uh, I think the key thing is um, to, to see if this time around, the time lag between the event and the response, international response, in terms of institutional reform and other reforms, is shorter than for others. And I think it may well be, and that's why I'm particularly optimistic, because I think people are beginning to understand the lifestyle changes for them personally uh, with this. Um, so, you know, it can be things like, I can't go to India right now, where my mother is, because it's a red country. So it's completely, you know, changes my approach. I'm sure it's happened for many other people. So lots of lifestyle changes that we have to actually tackle, because they're actually hitting the personal level in the West as much as in emerging markets and developing countries. So for that reason, I think the G7 uh, leadership is more likely to act uh, on this than in some other cases. So I think it's an incentive reason as well, which is about lifestyle. That's really interesting. Thank you. We, we have Tom back. Tom, I will come to you in a moment, but uh, Una first. I'm, I'm doing the final optimistic, pessimistic question, uh, and then I'll come to you, Tom, to finish the point you were making and to answer that too. So uh, Una, uh, uh, optimistic? I think I class myself as a realistic optimist, which is, you know, in that uh, communique from the G7 health ministers, there's definitely a sense of urgency, uh, a sense of commitment and the scale of the task. Uh, what I've yet to see, and this links right back to what Simi was saying at the beginning, is really where, where are the resources and the commitments to make this happen? Uh, having a grand goal for the end of next year for vaccines is all very well, but the actual hard work of seeing how that gets delivered month by month, we just can't see that at the moment. So I want to believe that the commitments will be fulfilled. I've yet to be convinced that the plans and the resources are there to make it to make it happen. Thanks, Una. And uh, Tom, optimist, pessimist, but also finish your point about the, uh, as you were cut off uh, cruelly mid-flow about the sort of overall strategy and the uh, lockdown versus other responses. Um, yeah, it's, it's become, in the UK certainly, we've, we've got this narrative now that it was obvious that we should have locked down um, and there was a sort of moral failing at this, this herd immunity strategy at the beginning. Um, and my worry is that that could lead to an inflexibility of thought. Um, you don't have to think very hard about counterfactuals for this year. Uh, imagine if we hadn't been able to get a vaccine, and that's not mad. It turns out this is a really vaccinable target. We still haven't got a vaccine for HIV, and that's not for want of trying. So imagine we hadn't been able to get it. Well, lockdown wouldn't have really helped us terribly much. We haven't got any antivirals either. Um, or imagine if lockdown hadn't worked. Um, right at the beginning, every day, the scientists were watching the data to see if, if you know, if we were actually going to turn the curve in the UK. And frankly, if we'd had this current Delta variant back then, I don't know whether lockdown would have worked. Um, so I think uh, we, we, we've got a danger of, of fixing ourselves on that was the way to do the pandemic. Um, and that that could itself be quite worrying. Um, in terms of my optimism and pessimism um, for this pandemic, I still think probably by the end of this year, in most of the world, it will be something that happened in the past and probably we will be fine. And 
where it is trans transmitting, people will think, well, look, we're over the back of this. But I've been wrong about almost all of my predictions, particularly about the longevity of the pandemic. And there are quite clearly reasonably plausible things that could happen between now and then and reasonably well understood uncertainties that could make that prediction completely wrong. Um, and so in, in that sense, I, I, I guess I'm, I've taught myself into being quite pessimistic. <laughs> well, there we go. We had the full gamut there. Uh, thank you, uh, Tom. And thanks to all four of you, uh, uh, Una, Cherry, uh, Tom and uh, Suma, our optimistic broadly uh, uh, panel. Um, uh, that was a, a really interesting uh, discussion. Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks to uh, all of you for your um, questions and uh, for uh, uh, tuning into this uh, event. Um, uh, and uh, for uh, the partnership that, uh, that we've had with them for uh, this work. Um, uh, uh, the uh, uh, feed of this will be on our usual IFG uh, channels on the website and the podcast feed. Um, so if you want to listen again or miss some of it, do keep an eye out for it there. Uh, and I should also uh, flag another global uh, event. We've got events next Tuesday, the 15th of June. What does global Britain mean with uh, Peter Ricketts and Peter Westmacott that uh, uh, Bronwyn Maddox will be chairing? So keep an eye out for that. Two. Thank you all uh, for tuning in. Thanks again to the panel and to welcome and uh, have a very good rest of the day. <laughs>